0: so we, we there's a little bit of a uh, change from last week uh, when Bryce preached, and this is the order that John covers things in. there was the conversation of the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the lamb, right, and then we shift to a, a very different feeling passage uh, here in verse eleven uh, to the end and uh, and it, it's a little bit it can be a little bit jarring it, it's uh it, it made me think of this scene from the fantastic Mr. Fox. If you've seen this movie, uh, it's now uh, close to 20 years old. And uh, and in it, uh, Mr. Fox, uh, he's a fox, and it's a stop motion movie. He has started a fight with the farmers, and the farmers are the evil guys, and it, it's, it's a movie. I'm, I'm pro-farmer, uh, and I'm against foxes eating farmer's food, but uh, in, in this one, the, the fox is the hero, and uh, and he's fighting the farmers, and they come up with this great plan to steal food and a little bit to humiliate the farmers, and they have great success, at least they think they do, and so they're sitting around the table with celebrating a meal at their victory, and they've got, you know, as foxes and badgers and weasels do, they have a bottle of champagne and all this good food, and, and uh, Mr. Fox says, we beat them. This is a meal of celebration. We beat those farmers. And now we're triumphantly eating their roasted chicken, their sizzling duck, their succulent turkey, their foie gras. And then you hear this rumbling. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And, and then Mr. Fox says, cider. And this flow of cider down in these tunnels has been pumped in by the villainous uh, farmers. And they are all washed out into the sewer where they are trapped. Because they parked a station wagon above the manhole. They can't get out, right? So it moves from this moment of cel- this meal of celebration to one of catastrophe. Everything is, is lost uh, at this point. And, and there, there is a sense in which reading a passage like this, we can have that moment of, oh, it's the celebration. It's, it's the, the, the meal, the feast. And we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb, uh, look forward to it each week as we gather around the table, and yet we move out into the world, and, and it's not, not quite that way. We, we actually even uh, face catastrophe, and, uh, and that's the way that we read this passage, even if, if this passage isn't communicating what happens chronologically, it's happening the, the way that we read it, and it's happening the way that we experience life. We go from uh, great moments of celebration and joy to moments of catastrophe and mess, and and we don't know what to do with it, and we recognize that it's not the way that it's supposed to be, and in the midst of that, and even in the midst of this passage that we have read, and we go, oh, what do we do with that, uh, maybe it feels like just a catastrophe that that's even in here for some of us, we, we find, I think, great hope in this passage. As we think about and recognize the catastrophe, that's point one, we, we are faced with our capability or lack thereof to deal with it, Capability is the second point. And then we find the hope of Christ, that is the third point, that he brings to this catastrophe. So that's catastrophe, capability, and Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds in the midst of all the catastrophe that we experience and that is experienced in this world, that we would find the hope of Christ. Lord, do this work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the rider on the white horse, all the language that is used, the one who is faithful and true, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, uh, the one who wields the Word of God. This is clearly Jesus Christ uh, as the rider on the white horse. And when he comes in verse twelve, we see that he comes to judge and to make war. And, and we see that he's then met in that in verse nineteen that the kings and their the beast and the kings and their followers uh, go to make war with. The rider on the white horse and all of those who are following him. There is very much catastrophe at hand here. So we've moved from that uh, celebration, the wedding supper of the lamb, that promise of what is to come. We've moved to this picture of of things being uh, an absolute mess. And this is this is our experience. Again, reading the passage, maybe, but also just in the world. We can look and see the things that are happening in this world. We can see actual, real conflicts happening in Israel and Palestine and Ukraine and Azerbaijan and South Sudan. And, and we could just go on and on. Human trafficking that exists in every country. We can, we can talk about the things that we've experienced in our own lives. And, and it, is, it is not the way that it's supposed to be. And it is messy. And really, really heavy at times. I, I, I thought about was even having a conversation with uh, my son about illustration and fantastic Mr. Fox. He, he actually gave me that one. And, um, and talking about the one that I had thought about is heavier uh, and, and yet very real. And it, it was on sabbatical when Steph and I were having this amazing meal in Del Mar, California with some friends of ours that we had gone to college with and done college ministry with. And we had walked on the beach at Torrey Pines, and then we're, we're, we go to lunch, and the food is amazing, these amazing tacos, and we're outside because it's California, and the weather's amazing, and you know, right, right there, you can see the beach, and it, it's, a, it's a celebration, right? And I, I get a call from Mark that uh, Kelly Smith Perry has collapsed and probably isn't going to make it, and over the course of the meal, I learned that's exactly what happens, and that's heavy, and that's the reality. Like, like to, so Pat was, was like, what, well, are you going to use that one? And, uh, and, and it even feels heavy talking about it now. And, and yet that's our experience. That's actually more indicative of the real experience of catastrophe that we have in this world. And, and maybe it's that. Maybe it's the loss of our good friend. But it's all kinds of other things that we experience. That it's not the way that it's supposed to be. That it's, it's, it's very very hard to deal with. And, and again, for some of us, we come to this passage and, and it itself feels like a catastrophe. What do we do with this judgment and this lake of fire and all these things? And that feels heavy for us. And it's just one of many things that we experience that is catastrophe in this world. And, and nothing is exempt from it. Uh, Peterson, in his book on Revelation, I've quoted from it a few different times. It's he gives a lot of helpful insight. He says this. He says, nothing is exempt from the catastrophe. Nothing is innocent in the catastrophe. Heaven and earth are implicated. Bacteria foul the bloodstreams, sickening sinner and saint. Hailstones plummet out of the skies and flatten a wheat field. Fragile and elegant, ready for harvest. Liquid fire rips through the earth's crust, incinerating tigers and trees in volcanic fury. Rebel angels, disbarred from practicing in the courts of heaven, infiltrate invisible world realms, twisting the glories of intelligence into patterns of deception. And human beings, created in the image of God, discover within themselves, often in shocked horror, a heart desperately wicked. We experience the, the brokenness out there and all of the things that we can think about, and we experience it in our own hearts and lives. It is in us. And it is around us and, and revelation in this way, as much of scripture, hopefully can be refreshing and that it acknowledges it and dives into it. That there can be a tendency within the church to gloss over the mess and to say, oh, it's all fine with, with Jesus. And the promise is that, yes, one day it will be all fine. And we're coming to Revelation 21 next week. And there's, there's even promise in looking to that uh, in this passage. But now it's not. And, and we need to be open and honest about it and to dive into it, to recognize it with one another. And to, and to ask, what, what does the Bible have to say about it? What does Jesus have to teach us in the midst of it? Because we recognize that we can't fix it. And so we're faced with, the second point, the capability that we have, which is we don't have the capability to fix it, to deal with it. We, we might try, and the world often tries optimism, you know, if people are, are, are basically good, which is not a scriptural teaching, and if we, just, if we just appeal to the goodness, if we just educate rightly, if we just get the right plan in place, if we just get the right political leader, if we just get the right educational system, if we just get X right, then we will fix what is broken in this world, and what we find is that at every point, that fails, that we are not capable of fixing because what we have described here in the visions throughout revelation and certainly here is a picture of a spiritual battle and we need a spiritual answer and we cannot fix it on our own and particularly so if we try to deal with it without god with just our hard work with just our optimism now The implication is that we're invited into the battle and to participate in it ourselves and to actually help address some of those things that I talked about. Structures and justice and uh, moving good forward and righteousness in this world. But the moment that we do that absent God and his work and his power is the moment we're putting our hope in something that will not deliver. And so we're invited to come to this judge who is judging here and trust in him. Because even in that idea of judgment, we are going to fail ourselves. We struggle with this passage regularly because it it speaks of the judgment of God, which sits really uncomfortably with us for a couple of different reasons. One is, from the very beginning of brokenness, from the fall, we want to be God. We want to be the judge. We want to determine what is right and wrong. And so we judge God. And we say, well, his judgments aren't right or good. Because we look at the world, we see the brokenness, and we decide that it's God who uh, caused this, or it's God who is doing this particular thing. We read parts of Scripture that don't sit well with us, and we judge it ourselves. We, we think, well, I'm the judge to decide uh, what should be right and what should be wrong. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're also uncomfortable with judgment because we recognize that we ourselves might be judged. That the catastrophe comes into our own hearts and our own lives. And so we, we struggle with what the implications are of God's judgment on our own hearts and lives. And so we, we try to do it on our own. And, and, and again, we look at all of the, the efforts out there in a broken world to, to fix the catastrophe and the brokenness and And we see it it fails at every point. And even if if you look through history and you look around the world and you you see our justice system, which many argue is is the best justice system that we have, there are so many points throughout history in which it has failed horribly. And there are a lot of people that could testify to that. And that's not to say, again, that's not to say that we don't keep striving and working and and moving to to be more just and to be a part of that ourselves. But we recognize that because all of these things are implemented by people who have the catastrophe running through their own hearts and lives, that we're not going to be able to do it. That we're not going to be able to fix it. Because what we're dealing with here is a spiritual battle. The armies of heaven are gathered with the rider on the white horse, verse 14. We see that the way that the rider on the white horse engages, he has one weapon, and his weapon is the word of God, verse 15. The word of God. In contrast, if we remember back to the the Christmas dragon from chapter 12, uh, that the, the dragon lies, and the lies come out of his mouth, and they try to destroy humankind. So here we have this spiritual battle where the word of God, the revelation of God, the word of truth comes. And that is the weapon that is used, the revelation of God himself, the one that we celebrate at Christmas, the one that we we sit in. He has come now and we rejoice in that and he will come again and make all things right. But this spiritual battle is one that is recognized throughout the scripture So that we see that when Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, he was arming us for a life of salvation. He's speaking of prayer and its implication in this battle and this work for salvation. St. Paul, preaching salvation, did not organize an ethical society around the Mediterranean basin. He fought battles and developed an extensive vocabulary to name the evil opposition. He's speaking to the spiritual reality. He calls them the powers in Romans 8, the rulers in 1 Corinthians 2, the thrones in Colossians 1, the dominions in Ephesians 1. We're told that it is a spiritual battle that we are fighting. And yet he didn't seem to be the least bit intimidated by these ominous forces. He was always working from a stance of accomplished victory since Jesus on the cross disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2. There is constantly this recognition of this spiritual battle at hand, and Jesus rebukes Peter, when he pulls out a physical sword to cut off the guard's ear in the garden of Gethsemane, and he rebukes him and restores the ear. It is a spiritual battle that is entered into, and the people of God are no longer soldiers in a physical army. The the church is the new Israel, and it is a spiritual kingdom for which we fight and are invited to join in this spiritual ward with our prayers. We pray every week because we believe that they are, are powerful. And so as you see the brokenness around the world, you, you'll, you'll see that there are often uh, prayers offered and now it's become a, a, a typical uh, routine to mock those that would offer their thoughts and prayers uh, as, as if they are not effective. Now, again, this does invite us in to take action For this to impact our lives, this this gospel message, this kingdom message should affect everything that we are and everything that we do. And we're called into a world that was created by God that we're supposed to move forward in in a way that is informed continually by being his creation. That's the series that we're going to next that has all kinds of implications for the way that we do everything that we do. Education and politics and relationships and jobs and all of that matters. Right? But it is founded in a spiritual work. And so prayers do matter. They are effective. They, we are called to those things in this spiritual war that is described here. And there's a sense in which it's looking forward to battle to come. But it's also describing the things that we experience now. We are in spiritual battle now. And so we're invited to recognize our inability to know that we, we can't do it ourselves And to humble ourselves before the Lord first and foremost, but that means also humbling ourselves before one another because as the catastrophe runs through our own hearts, it means that we don't have it all figured out. And so we need one another, and we're invited into this together, to be a part of this heavenly army together. And within this spiritual battle, there is then a great hope offered because of the one that is the rider on the white horse. Verse 12, he comes with this incredible promise that he is actually going to bring about. Yes, it is judgment, but ultimately it is justice that we long for that is is necessary now, we have, to, we have to be rooted in the catastrophe and the brokenness of this world for us to believe that the judgment is necessary. If we think everything's just kind of fine and everybody's basically good, then, then yes, judgment and justice doesn't really make sense. But if we recognize the depth of evil and brokenness in this world, then, then seeing justice poured out will actually bring us great hope. And the promise that it will be fulfilled is, is incredibly hopeful. And so even in this passage that sits weirdly with us, the angel standing, verse 17, in the sun, and he called to all the birds to fly over, come gather together for the great supper of God, where they will feast on, on those that have been destroyed as, as vultures, as, uh, as birds of, of, of prey, That that there is actually a hope here because he's saying it's done. This is before the battle has actually been accomplished. And he says, uh, he says, Come, the, the, the meal is going to happen. There's a promise here, even in that, that there is going to be justice brought. And the one who brings that justice is the rider on the white horse, the one who comes with great power. He has many diadems, verse 12. We've seen that idea of crowns representing power throughout Revelation. And often, even when it comes on the beast and the power that he has, or the dragon, the power that he has, it, it names seven uh, diadems, Go, going back to uh, chapter 12. But here it's many. There's almost this, this picture of the, the diadems, the power, can't even be counted. He is so powerful that uh, he is going to rule, be able to, to, to rule the nations. So verse 15, rule with a rod of iron, going back as... as he has already done in the book of Revelation, referencing Psalm 2, this messianic psalm, promising salvation from the Messiah, from the God who will reign and rule over all the nations and all of the evil and brokenness that exists in those nations. This one who is going to do this, he is faithful and true. Verse 11, verse 16, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the midst of all of that, there is something like we, we, we read this passage or we read the whole of Scripture and we want to get our minds around everything and have answers to everything. And, you know, I've talked about this before as your pastor. I, I have all the answers, um, but no, we, none of us have all the answers. Right. There's so many things that we don't have. And there's a picture of that here is he has described himself in verse 12. We see he is, has the power the diadems, and his name is written, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. There's this picture, this reminder, this, this mystery that we cannot fully comprehend who he is and what he's doing. That we come to, and this is one of the beautiful things about Revelation is the way that it engages our imagination to, to look and to dream and to hope for what he's doing, but recognize that we're never going to fully understand it, and that's part of him being God and us not. <laughs> And us having that catastrophe running through our own hearts. But what we find is that one with all this power, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is faithful and true, the only one who has ever been completely faithful and true, the one who will be able to rule with the rod of iron. He is accomplishing justice and justice is making things right. He's dealing with that evil and catastrophe that that runs through this this world People, systems, everybody, Every, everything that would follow. And those enemies are those that have uh, arranged themselves in opposition to him. And that's powerful people. So the beast and the kings, but it's also everybody else uh, who has set themselves against the Lord. So we see that it includes slave and free. It's, it's everybody who have set themselves against him. But he comes with power to enact justice. We long for justice. And this, this picture that he has the power to enact it should be incredibly hopeful to us. As, as we hear stories or watch stories that are even made up of injustice occurring in the world, we, we have those moments where we long for the, the one with power to come and to make things right. I love the ones where it happens in unexpected ways, where you don't actually expect the person to have the power to do something about the evil that's happening to them. So uh, a bit of a silly example, but uh, the, the movie Shang-Chi is uh, about uh, shang Sean in the beginning, and he's just this valet in San Francisco. You don't know much about him, but he just seems like this guy who hasn't figured out his way in the world. He's probably in his 20s, and he's, uh, he's just trying to figure out what's going on. He's riding the bus with his friend, Katie, and, uh, and a guy comes up to him, and, and you can tell he's bad. And, uh, and he wants to steal his pendant. And, 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 and if you don't, I mean, you, you're watching a movie, so you have some idea of what's coming. But if you don't, like, you, you think this guy's just a valet, he doesn't have uh, any ability, any power to deal with this evil that's in front of him. Well, what unfolds is a lot more evil, so a bunch of other guys, one with a, like half an arm, which a flaming sword uh, comes out of, right? And you're like, oh, well, now he's done, but he's not. He's got this, this magical power. It's part of him being Shang-Chi, right? And so you're like, yes! Uh, you, you, you see this fight scene that plays out, and you're like, oh, the guy with power is actually able to, to deal with these bad guys, with this evil. And, 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 we, and, and the whole movie then plays out with this, who has the power to accomplish the purposes they want to? And you want it to be the person who is seeking good and fighting against evil. And we know that's not always the way that it works. Because we watch a lot of movies and we know a lot of stories in our own lives where that's not the way that it plays out. Where the, the one with power is evil. And we long for in those moments for justice to happen. And the promise here is that ultimately that's exactly the only reason that we can have hope in this world is there is one with that kind of power who has promised that he's going to accomplish it. And he calls us in to hope in it and to join him in it. And so the call, we we could then think, okay, now I've got to work really hard and join him in that fight. And we, we do, but here's the beautiful thing is the thing about the rider on the white horse, the thing about Christ is that he invites us to join in what he's doing just to trust in him because he's done the work. So we see in verse 13, before the battle has begun, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is before the battle has begun. This is the picture of that blood being his own, the sacrifice that he made, that that judgment and wrath that is poured out by God was poured out upon him so that those who trust in him and that those all we do is we trust that we join with him that we're covered. And so that we don't need to fear that judgment to come because what is just and right is for those who have trusted in Jesus can say, oh, it's been done. The judgment has already been poured out. It doesn't need to be poured out upon me because I'm trusting in Jesus and it was poured out upon him. His robe is dipped in blood so that those who are riding along with him, who are following him, verse 12, those the other white horses with the riders are following him, that they have the fine linens, pure and white because of what Jesus has done, because we, because of the catastrophe that runs through our hearts, can't do it ourselves. We can't fix ourselves, but he has done it. He allows us, invites us to join with him in the story that he's working. The safest place to be, then, what we see here is actually on the battlefield. It's in the fight. The the dangerous place to be is in the not fighting. Because we are with him and joined with him in the place that he's working. And he's already told us in Mark chapter 3 that that he's entered the house and he's bound the strong man, that he has has done the work that is necessary. And what we'll see is happening here, the picture of what's happening here, we, we see next week in chapter 21, is that it will all be ultimately and finally done so that as we have celebrated the first coming of Jesus, we know that that's just the precursor to the second coming, which is all the more beautiful. And it's even, it's so beautiful that we can't actually imagine it. It's so beautiful that we can't even get our minds around what it will be like. And yet, because the one who is powerful, the one who is ultimately faithful and true and just and king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has sacrificed himself, invites us in to put our hope in him and join him in the work that he's doing. Let's pray.